And we begin this morning in verse 26 as we consider God's Word. As you, if you've been around for a little while, you, of course, know we've been in Luke for a little while, haven't we? Uh, This is, um, perhaps I shouldn't tell you this, but this is uh, Luke part 100 today. And so the 100th sermon in Luke's Gospel. Now I remind you, this is the longest book in the New Testament. And so it was going to take us a little while to get through it. I won't even remind you as to when we started, so we'll just forget about that. But here we are in in, uh, part 100 this morning. I do hope it's been a rich blessing to you as it has for me. I think we today, as we come into this um, passage of Scripture, uh, we begin to walk in the holy ground of Scripture. I think uh, here we come today... Next time and the time after that. I really think we have reached the climax of the entire biblical story. Not just Luke's gospel, but, but all of scripture. In fact, I believe this to be the apex of human history. The truths in which we shall consider. And so I think it's good and appropriate, even as we just sang, that we sometimes tremble. I, I think we should come to this passage. with some trembling in our heart. Charles Spurgeon said of the Passion events, here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. Another said, surely this is a passage we must approach on our knees. And it is my hope that that is our heart attitude this morning as we consider the crucifixion of our Lord from Luke 23, beginning in verse 26. Hear now the word of God. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. And the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. 
One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Our Father, we ask for help now as we consider your word. We pray that you would guide us and lead us into your truth. And that we would just not hear it in our minds. It would not simply be a mental exercise for us this morning as we consider perhaps with even a fresh, fresh eyes, fresh heart, the work of our Lord through his crucifixion, that we would be formed more into Christ's image. That we would we leave here today forgetting ourselves more and more and living for the glory of the one who has died for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every religion has a symbol. Every uh, uh, philosophy or intellectual system has some type of icon to identify their cause. Uh, John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, which is one of the greatest books I've ever read, explains that the Buddhists have the lotus flower, a wheel shape, in the wheel shape depicting the cycle of life. Life emerges, beauty emerges from the chaotic waters. Judaism has the Star of David, a hexagram formed by two triangles emphasizing God's covenant with David. Islam would adopt the crescent moon, a symbol long used by other nations representing power. Marxism has chosen the hammer and the sickle signifying the union of the two forms of labor, manufacturing and agriculture. Of course, Christianity has a symbol too, doesn't it? Not initially. It's never given to us in Scripture, this will be your symbol. It took a hundred years or more for Christianity to adopt one. Of course, there are many options, weren't there? You might think, well, maybe Christians would adopt the, the manger to remind us that God has come into this world and become a man or Maybe the Christians would adopt a boat to remind us that Jesus has come to be a fisher for men, and we too are to fish for men. Maybe, maybe they would adopt a, a stone or an empty tomb to proclaim his resurrection, or even a throne to, to proclaim his sovereignty. And yet, n- none of these were selected, were they? And by the middle of the second century, all of these are passed over for a very strange symbol, I think, uh, that of an empty cross. John Stott says the early Christians wished to commemorate as central to their understanding of Jesus neither his birth nor his youth, neither his teaching nor his service, neither his resurrection nor his reign, but his death, his crucifixion. Raises the question, I think, why? Why choose the cross? I think none of us, if we actually saw a crucifixion, would have the stomach to endure it, to witness it, and yet we have chosen to find some particular glory in it. This repulsive instrument of anguish, highest example of forsakenness that was only reserved for those who were considered worthless, and and yet we love the cross. We cherish the cross. It would the, the modern equivalent, I think, would be like wearing a golden electric chair around your neck. Or maybe we could have a giant noose there hanging above the baptismal. Somewhat horrifying if we think about it. And in fact, the cross, I think, is far, far worse. It's far worse 
death and being electrocuted or hung. I, I, I think you probably know that in Jesus' day, no one was singing songs about the cross. It was not rugged and sweet to them. And yet, what we have done is we have taken Jesus' greatest shame and deepest pain, and we have said, that's our logo. That is what we want to represent us. It's odd, isn't it? Of course, we we know the cross was perhaps the most painful way ever invented to kill someone. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard the horrors of it. Nails the size of railroad spikes are hammered through a, a man's hands or wrists, and then again through his overlapping feet. Um, and yet, th- this wouldn't kill anyone. It, it, they wouldn't bleed out from that. It doesn't strike any major arteries or hit any organs. And so, uh, the death of crucifixion is not quick, like being shot or hung. It generally takes days. The, one would die um, by their heart just simply giving out a heart attack, or uh, they would not have enough strength to lift themselves up in order to take a breath, and they would die by asph- asphyxiation. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said of the cross, it is the most wretched of deaths. Tacitus, the Roman historian, called it a despicable death. Cicero would say it's the most cruel and terrible penalty, incapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it. We can't even describe it, they said. We've tried, by the way. Uh, the, the The pain of the cross has been described as excruciating, which is a Latin word simply meaning, quite literally, out of the cross, excruciating out of the crucifixion. In other words, it's a form of death that is so heinous that we needed to create a new vocabulary to describe its horror. Notice how Luke describes it there in verse 33. He writes, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. I mean, that's it. And he was crucified. Uh, it's just almost as a matter of fact. And it's like, and there they ate lunch, right? Then they arrived, and, and there they crucified. And just the facts. In fact, all four Gospels do the same. None of them mention the gory details of the cross. None of them focus on the pain and the, and the, and the, the, the torment of it. They simply just mention it. He was crucified. In fact, the Gospels do not focus on the pain of the cross, but instead have chosen to focus on on the shame of the cross. The cross was not just about pain. It was also about humiliation. And we'll see that in this passage today as we work our way, that Jesus was personally rejected and despised and humiliated by almost everyone. Um, Everyone just uh, just comes against them. In fact, it didn't start in the crucifixion. As we've seen in our study of Luke, he's been uh, rejected and abandoned and, and denied by his followers. He's been uh, turned on by the religious leaders. He's been beaten by the temple soldiers as they mock and spit upon him. He's been despised by the Jewish crowds as they cry out for his crucifixion. Herod and Pilate soldiers separately mock and strike him. They, they put a crown of thorns upon his head and a purple robe on his shoulders, and they bow before him, and they, and they call out things like, your highness, right? Hail, king of the Jews, they say. As this man is bruised and beaten and bloody and bound, spit running down his face, he didn't look much like a king to them, which made it all the more hilarious as they bow before this limp and beaten man. They they mock him well before the crucifixion, and then they come and crucify them, and their rejection and shame and humiliation of Jesus does not end in his crucifixion. 
In fact, his crucifixion brings forth little compassion from those who observe it. They will parade him. They will strip him naked. They will hoist him in the sky for all to see. And one by one, they will mock him. The religious leaders will mock him. The soldiers will mock him. The dying criminals will mock him. The passerbys will mock him. And I think probably if I were there too, I would have mocked him. I would have laughed, shook my head, thought, is this the king that's supposed to save us? Just like the rest. I find that song powerful that we just sang, were you there when they crucified our Lord? I think you know the answer in some sense. Yeah, I was there. He died because of my sin. I think we ought to remember that as we consider the crucifixion of the Lord. I think we ought to remember this is happening because of my sin. And that ought to help us to hate it, don't you think? When we're short with our wives, when we dishonor our parents, when we're impatient on the road, when we're wayward in our thoughts, when we're silent in our witness, when we're divisive in church, when we're tepid in our worship, we ought to think Christ died to endure these sins. And the cross might just help you to hate them and turn from them. But of course, this is not simply a picture of our sins. It's not even primarily a picture of our sins. It's primarily a picture of the love of God for sinners. And so let this passage remind you that he died because he loves you. And let that love that God manifested in the cross conjure from you this stunned worship at the depth of his mercy. And a a growing need to declare his praise and an increasing desire to follow him in joyful submission and passionate obedience. That is my prayer today, that we would be stunned by the love of Christ today as we consider the shame of the cross and the love of the crucified. Consider, first of all, this morning how they prayed Jesus. Number one, they prayed Jesus. Verse 26. And they led him away. And they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. When you were crucified, they, would, they, they wouldn't just immediately crucify you. First, you had this shameful act of parading you through the streets. They would take the longest route possible for all the bystanders to come out and to, to cast their derision upon you as you stumble along. Because you would stumble, by the way, because as you go, you would have to carry your own cross. Now, you wouldn't carry the vertical beam. That would be too heavy to carry. That would already be in the ground. But you would carry the cross beam. Think of about a railroad tie. They, we know that they weighed up to 100 pounds. And this would be kind of the final indignity on your way to the crucifixion. It would be like having to carry the electric chair to your own execution. And so Jesus would carry this cross, but we know that he could only carry it for so long down the, what has been called in church history, the Via Della Rosa. With his cross upon his back, he stumbles. And uh, there's another who, who would have to carry it. But even before they grab that other, it's, it's, I think when you read about this and consider Jesus carrying this cross, doesn't it remind you of, a, of another who carried the wood for his own sacrifice? Another son, right? Another promised son. I think of Isaac who would carry the wood for the sacrifice that he was to be placed upon. You know what mountain that Moriah, uh, excuse me, well, I just told you, uh, that Isaac climbed is Mount Moriah. Now, you, you probably know that Mount, the Mount Moriah is the very place where Jerusalem was built. And so thousands of years earlier, before Jesus carried the wood for his sacrifice, 
Isaac carried his upon this very hill, foreshadowing what Christ would, uh, would do for us. Well, Christ, as I mentioned, could only do so for so long because of the beatings that he's received and the scourging with those heinous whips. Uh, he did not have the strength to carry the cross all the way. And so uh, they grabbed this man, uh, this, a conscript, this observer. We know him as Simon of Cyrene. You know, it's interesting. There's just a little event. Hey, Jesus can't carry his cross. Simon carried it. But all four Gospels mention this. In fact, all four mention him by name. And I wonder if they do so because this is a powerful picture, I think, of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Was it not Jesus who said, as anyone would come after me, he must, what? Carry his cross and follow me. And what do we see here? But there goes Jesus and Simon behind him, following him, carrying that cross. A striking image of what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. Jesus has taught us, if you're to follow Jesus, please understand, in that pursuit of Christ, you will experience hardship and suffering and sacrifice. That's our, our, our cross to bear. It's not simply health issues and things like that. It's, it's rather that in my pursuit of Christ, I am making my life more difficult. It is going to become harder for me when I follow Christ. I will have to carry a cross. In fact, this picture was a powerful help in a man named Charles Simeon, a great hero in church history. Charles Simeon uh, lived in the 18th century, and he pastored the Holy Trinity Church at Cambridge University for 54 years. And Simeon uh, came to that church and had his powerful uh, ministry, was a, uh, one of the first faithful expository preachers in modern times. And he trained many missionaries in Friday afternoon teas. And he had a very powerful ministry, but it didn't start out that way. You see, Simeon wanted to preach the Bible, but no one in his church wanted to hear it. They were not happy that this, this university church had a Bible-believing pastor. And so the members of the church refused to attend church. But they didn't just stop attending. They locked their pews. You know, you've walked into the old churches, haven't you, with the pews with the doors and the little name engraved. And back then, when you were rich, you didn't sit in the back, believe it or not. You sat in the front, right? And, and, but they would lock their pews and so forth. So no one could sit in their pews. You wanted to hear the Bible preached at the Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge University, you would have to sit in the aisle or stand in the back for 10 years. Can you imagine how discouraging that would be to a pastor? And Charles Simeon was greatly discouraged until one day. He writes, one day when I was an object of much contempt and derision at the university, I strolled forth buffeted and afflicted. Taking my little Greek testament in hand, I prayed that God would comfort me with some cordial from his word. And opening it, the first text which caught my eye was this. They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and, they compel, and him they compelled to bear his cross. He writes, Simon, you know, is the same name as Simeon. It was this very word I needed. What a privilege to have the cross laid on me to bear it with Jesus. It was enough, he writes. I, I could leap and sing for joy. Lay it on me, Lord, I cry. And henceforth I bound persecution as a wreath of glory round my brow. My friends, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you too must carry a cross. Carry your cross and follow me, Jesus says. Simon of Cyrene was 
perhaps the first of many to do so. And I not just, you know, literally carry Jesus' cross. I think he was figuratively carrying his cross. I believe there's another reason why this man is mentioned in all four Gospels. Why, why not just say he they grabbed a passerby? Why, why do they say, hey, the guy that carried it is Simon of Cyrene? It's almost as if the Gospel writers expect them to know who this man is. In fact, Mark, in his gospel, very interestingly, Mark says, they grabbed Simon of Cyrene, you know, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, Mark, by the way, is writing to the Roman church. Paul would write a letter to the Roman church, that same Christians. He gets to the end of his letter, and he has a greeting, and he says, please greet Rufus for me. And most commentators believe that Simon of Cyrene came to faith in Christ. That he bowed his knee in belief in Jesus. That even as Christ is being shamed this way, he is still reaching out and saving the lost. Notice he was not a disciple. Luke tells us he was simply coming in from the countries, going in Jerusalem, do some shopping or something. And there they grab him and he unwillingly force upon this loathsome cross upon him. And as he does, he listens to Jesus speak to these women there in verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And he listens to that gracious warning that Jesus gives them that we considered last time we were in Luke's gospel. And maybe he hears Jesus pray for forgiveness for those who are killing him. Maybe he, he, he sticks around to be amazed at the promise to the dying thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. And at some point, Simeon of Cyrene believes. And as a result, his children believe. And I think the rest of his life, he told that story. Let me tell you about the day I was coming in Jerusalem and there was a crucifixion. And it changed my life. Jesus is saving sinners until the very end. Well, they finally do arrive, don't they? They're, and they crucify him upon that hill. But they don't only crucify him, they slander Jesus. As you consider, secondly, the slander of Jesus recorded in verse 32. Two others were criminals. Were, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. The place that is called the skull is a large hill outside of Jerusalem. It's not littered with skulls, as you might think. It's just a hill that kind of resembles a skull. That's why they call it the skull. In the Aramaic, that word is Golgotha. In Latin, it's Calvary. And it's there upon Calvary's hill by this major road so all could watch, uh, they crucified Jesus. They, They nailed the Son of God to a cross and hoisted him up into the sky, just as Jesus had predicted they would. In John chapter 12, he says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then John adds, he said this to show, but what what kind of death he was going to die. In fact, it's not just what Jesus predicted, it's what God predicted through the through David thousand years earlier. You know, David in Psalm 22, he, he writes this, this psalm that in some way refers to himself, but far more powerfully refers to the Lord. I mean, what could have David meant when he wrote these words? They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. By the way, he wrote that about 700 years before they invented crucifixion. Psalm 22 is a powerful um, prophecy. In fact, we'll be referring to it throughout this sermon. It might be even good for you this afternoon. Maybe you're looking for something to do. You grab a spouse or a child and say, hey, let's just go get away and just read Psalm 22. Let's consider this truth. It's powerful testimony to what 
happened to Christ as he was crucified. And they're not crucified alone, as you note. He was crucified with two criminals. Luke tells us one on his right and one on his left. Of course, their message is clear, isn't it? I was talking to my children about this passage last night. I said, why was he crucified with two criminals? And their hands all shot up. And I called on one of them and say, just to show that he was like them, which is exactly right. Right? Jesus is like them. It's like having your mug shot and you have a, a, a rapist on the left and a murderer on the right and there your face is right in the middle just to communicate this is one of them. And this is the message in which they are com- trying to communicate. And I think God's message is probably equally clear that Jesus, the Son, is taking the place reserved for lawbreakers and transgressors. The place due for you and I. Right? He is being identified with sinners So why? So you and I can be identified with God. And they slander him in this way. Well, that's not enough. It's not enough just to put him between two criminals. You you almost think when you're reading this that someone at this point's got to say, okay, guys, that's enough. Let's lay off Jesus for a little bit. I mean, he's on the cross. He's going to die. Let's let him just die in peace, right? Someone would clearly speak up. We've had enough fun at his expense, but I'm afraid not. The abuse did not stop once he was hoisted up in the sky. In fact, while he hung up there, his shame continued down below. As you read in the second half of verse 34, we read, And they cast lots to divide his garments. We might call this the humiliation of Jesus. Number three, Jesus, you note, uh, was stripped naked. There will be no clothing to hide his writhing body. Uh, No garment there to protect some sense of dignity. He died naked and hoisted in the sky as his enemies gathered at his feet to play play a little game for the last thing he owns. It is a powerful image, I think, as the creator dies above. And what do they care? They they might get a new shirt out of this. And so there they, they, they humiliate him by throwing dice for his tunic. But just as the Lord had predicted, again in Psalm 22... They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I mean, if you read Psalm 22, it's almost, and not just Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and and elsewhere, it's almost like every event of the crucifixion is completing some promise uttered long ago. It's like fulfilled to very, very letter. And once again, I think it just helps us understand the Bible is true. It's, It's utterly reliable. I wonder, is it, is it, has it been reliable for you this week? Have you sought its wisdom and its truth as it shows itself to be true to us again and again? And, and once again, it predicted that Jesus would die naked and that they would gamble for his clothes. And there he is, fully exposed. And when I think about the exposure of the Lord Jesus, I, for, maybe I'm reading too much in this passage, but I can't help but remember it was our first parents, Adam and Eve, who, who originally were naked. Remember, they were naked and unashamed, and then they, they rebelled against God. They transgressed against them, and, and then immediately they were what? Filled with shame because of their nakedness. And what does God do? Out of his grace, he clothes them. And now we have Christ, who had no sin. He's exposed. And the sinful first Adam was clothed by God, and the sinless last Adam was unclothed by wicked men. He's he's taking our position, isn't he? He's changing with us. The sinless one takes our shame that we might be covered in his righteousness. He does that because he loves you.
This is powerful truth that impacted Corey Temboon in her life. Many of you, I think, know the story of Corey, this Christian teenager who suffered with her sister Betsy in the Nazi concentration camp. She writes in her autobiography, Fridays, the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. We had to maintain our erect hands and sides position as we filed slowly past a mass of grinning guards. How there could be any pleasure in the sight of these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs, I could not imagine. Nor could I see the necessity for complete undressing. But it was one of these mornings, while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another passage in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. The paintings, the carved crucifixes, show at least a scrap of cloth. But this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at that time itself, on that other Friday morning, there had been no reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned towards Betsy, ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin between her blue molted skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too, I whispered. Ahead of me, I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corey. And I never thanked him for it. I wonder if you, have you ever thanked the Lord Jesus for dying naked, shamed for your sin, for you? He did this, of course, while people stared at him, as you know, verse 35. And the people stood by watching. Just a little phrase Luke throws in there, but I just, it just strikes me. I, I, can, I imagine a human literally nailed to a cross and people just stand by to gawk and watch. Just nobody. It's just people passing by. People off to do their grocery shopping. And, oh, there's the guy who said he was the king of the Jews. There he is naked and dying on the cross. Let's watch for a while. See what happens. You know, Deuteronomy 21 says that anyone who's hung upon a tree is under a curse from God. And I think the more we explore the crucifixion of our Lord, we can understand that to be true. If this is not being cursed by God, then I don't know what it is. Some stand and watch and enjoy his humiliation, while others are more active. As you consider number four, they mocked Jesus. Mocking began with the moral religious leaders there in verse 35. Reading on, we see, and the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And they keep on heaping on scorn, hatred. By the way, it's interesting to note they admit that Jesus saved others. That's indisputable. There is no debate, even among his enemies, that Jesus healed the, the blind and cleansed the leopard and caused the lame to leave for joy. I mean, they all knew it to be indisputable truth. And now they use the powerful compassion of the Lord as a means of shaming him. I think you can even hear their taunts, can't you? It doesn't take much imagination. He healed the sick. I bet he'd probably like to heal himself right now. You saved others. You're going to save us, right, Jesus? It look like you could even save yourself. Hey, Jesus, we want to believe in you. Why don't you do something? Well, maybe you're a little busy today. You look all tied up. 
And they mocked him. Clearly, in their mind, he is not the Christ. I mean, the chosen one. How does this happen to the chosen one of God? Right? If he was the chosen one of God, we wouldn't be able to do this to him. Please understand, you can be very religious and very wicked. These moral, Bible-believing religious people, and they mock him. Well, not to be outdone, the foul-mouthed pagan soldiers, they mock him as well, as you see in verse 36. The soldiers also mock him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. I think you could probably think of the most foul language you can, and that's what they call Jesus. They offer him this sour wine, evidently part of some hilarious joke that they've conceived since it's accompanied with this taunt there in verse 37. They must have read the sign hanging above his head, verse 38. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. And so, you, look, you have the Bible-believing Pharisees and you have the foul-mouthed pagans. where They don't agree on anything. We understand that. You can't get more farther apart. But you know, finally, they agree on something, that Jesus is a ridiculous failure. It's like, it's like, if I can, it's like the Tea Party Republicans and the, the Bernie Sanders socialists, right, who don't even want to be in the same room with each other. And finally, they're having a great time at this party because they can be united that this Lord is a fool and a failure. Well, there's someone else who's watching all this, a thief who's dying next to him. And if these guys who never agree on anything will agree that Jesus is a disgrace, then who is he to disagree? As you see, the dying thief mocks him in verse 39. One of the criminals who hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Do something, says the thief on the cross. I I don't know if you... Can you sink any lower than that? Right? There, here's a man who is suffering in utter agony, and he musters up enough strength in order to heap abuse upon Jesus. Right? Hey, Messiah, I could use a little help right now, he says. Why don't you save yourself? Why don't you save me while you're at it? Right? Even as this man dies, he's going to die within days or if not hours. He's still not humbled. I think he is in many ways a picture of humanity that when we are guilty, we are still even able to condemn others. They all mock him, one after another. Once again, echoing Psalm 22, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The very words of David a thousand years before. They mock him. Why? What, what, what does this show us? Why does, why does Luke and all the other gospel leaders, uh, writers want us to hear this mocking? I think, friends, it at least shows us two things. I think, it, first of all, it, this mocking, I think, reveals our own hearts. I hope you can see yourself in it. You, you notice why they mock him. They, they don't mock him for his Sermon on the Mount, right? Oh, he said we should love our enemies, right? That's not what they're mocking him. They don't mock him because he, he, he helped the poor and healed the sick and elevated women and hugged the children, right? They didn't mock him for his actions. They mock him for his claims about himself. One by one, the rulers mock him for his claim to be Christ. The soldiers mock him for his claim to be king. The thief mocks him for his claim to be savior. They mock him for who he says he was. They did it in that day, and it continues to this very day. Anne Rice, who uh, is an acclaimed author and wrote uh, the, the novel Interview with a Vampire, she decided to write a novel about Jesus. And in the process, this uh, lifelong atheist became a Christian. 
Any good novelist uh, will, from what I understand, do background research on the topic in which they want to write. And so Anne Rice set out to study the academic writings about Jesus. She didn't set out to study the Bible, just the, with the university professors, what they had to say about Jesus. And if you know anything about the academic research of Jesus in the last hundred years, it's all about let's get behind the Gospels. The Gospels are fiction. They're fable. Let's find the real Jesus. Let's find the historical Jesus. And so you got the Gnostic Gospels written hundreds and hundreds of years after Jesus, the Da Vinci Code, the Jesus Seminar, James Cameron, and all the rest, right? Let's get beyond the silly claims. Let's find the real man. Let's find the real Jesus. And so she began to read this research, and this is what she concluded. Very fascinating to me. She wrote, the skeptical arguments that insisted most of the Gospels were suspect were full of conjecture. Some books were no more than assumptions piled upon assumptions. Absurd conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified, that whole picture which has floated in liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, a case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I ever read. I had also sent something else. Many of these scholars, scholars who apparently devoted their life to New Testament scholarship, disliked Jesus Christ. Some pitied him as a hopeless failure. Others sneered at him. And some felt an outright contempt. I never come across this kind of emotion in any other field of research. For example, the people who go into Elizabethan studies don't set out to prove Queen Elizabeth was a fool. They don't personally dislike her. They don't make snickering remarks about her or spend their careers trying to pick apart her historical reputation. In general, scholars don't spend their lives in the company of historical figures whom they openly despise. But there are New Testament scholars who detest and despise Jesus Christ. Why? Why do they hate him so? I think the same reason they did so when he was on the cross. They hate his claims. They hate his claims to be Savior. They hate his claims to be King. They hate his claims to be Lord. Because if you can get Jesus without his claims, then you get a helper. You get someone who's nice and, and, and shows you a way to live. But, but when he, if you actually embrace his claims, I am the King of kings. I am the Lord of lords. I am the, the chosen one of God. Then you must follow him. You must obey him. You must worship him. You must reorient your life around him. And we don't want to live that way. We, no one's to tell me what to do. I'm going to follow my own heart. I'm going to be who I want to be, and no one tells me that this is illegitimate, or this is illegitimate. That's who I am, and I'm going to do it. I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my soul, and all the rest, and we don't want anyone telling us what to do, and so our hearts hate the claims of Christ. It was Augustine who, long ago, who also became a Christian late in life, he remembered a time when he snuck into a pear orchard and stole pears. After he became a Christian, he was reflecting on that event, and he's wondering, why why did I do that? Why did I go steal those pears? In fact, he he wondered why, um, because he wasn't hungry when he did it, and he doesn't like pears. Hmm? What in the world did I do that for? Well, he discovered there was a third reason. He said, I did it because someone told me I couldn't. He said, I wouldn't have any interest in the pears except for they are forbidden. I think that reveals the core of our hearts, my friends. No one tells me how to live. No one tells me what to do. I follow my heart. 
And when it would come near to Jesus, and he says, I am the king. Hostility comes from us. The mocking reveals our hearts. But it only, not only reveals our hearts, you know what else it reveals? Jesus' heart, doesn't it? Right? And as they come and they mock him. At this point in the story, in fact, every story I seem to have ever read other than this one, every movie I've seen, I don't know if you like the same movies I like, um, but every movie I see, it's at this point that the hero escapes. Right? It's at this point when he looks defeated, when his enemies all around him and the odds are insurmountable, he finds the paperclip, right? He undoes the handcuffs, right? He whispers and the guard comes close and he headbutts them and then he, he jumps off the cross. And at this point where the apostles ride in on horses and they slay their enemies and the hero comes off the cross, right? If you're the hero, according to every story I've ever read other than the scripture, you come down from the cross and you destroy your enemies and you get victory that way. Jesus is the hero, and he is the hero not by coming off the cross, but by staying on the cross. And I think this must be the greatest display of self-control ever seen. Here's one who has all power. I mean, all power. And he receives their vile taunts one after another and does nothing to defend himself. Do you know why he just takes it? Because he loves them. As we consider lastly, being forgiven by Jesus. Look what he says there in verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At the time of his greatest pain and shame, Jesus finds strength to pray for his enemies. Forgive them, he prays. Forgive them, they who nail me to the cross, they who stripped me naked, they who gamble for my clothes, they who sneer and taunt me while I die. Forgive them. The very ones that are literally killing me, I pray, Father, that you would forgive them. You ever see the, uh, the movie, the, the Pianist? Uh, it was, it's an incredible movie. won many awards. And it, it was a, a movie about a Jewish pianist who was living in Warsaw when it was overrun by Nazi Germany. And in the movie, he watches from hiding as his mother and his father and his brothers and sisters and about 300,000 other Jews board trains and they head off to these death camps and these gas chambers. And he escapes and he tries to survive in this ghost town. And there's a, a point in the movie where he's hiding in this bombed out shelter, or his house. And, he's, and he's, he's at the point where he's starving to death. And he, he has found a tin of fruit and he's, he's wrestling in order to open it. And as he struggles, you don't realize it at first, but another person has entered the room. And the camera focuses, it switches his focus off from him to the presence of a German officer who's standing in the background. And he's asking, are you a Jew? And the man pauses for a moment and then says, yes. And the German officer says, what do you do? And the man responds, I am. And then he pauses and corrects himself. I was a pianist. And the officer says, Play something for me. And the man sits down on an old dusty piano. 
And he begins to play Chopin's ballad number one. And it is one of the most powerful times in a movie I've ever experienced because you have this, this overlay. You have this incredible, sublime seven or eight minutes in which the horror and the ugliness and the inhumanity of that moment, right in the middle of it, shines something of this exquisite beauty. I see that in this passage. There's another Jew here, isn't there? And in the midst of the unadulterated wickedness and hatred and the heinousness of that day, in the middle of it all, there is a prayer uttered of exquisite beauty. Father, forgive them. You know what God did with that prayer? (laughs) He answered it. Minutes later, the thief who railed against him on the cross, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The soldier who said, aren't you the king of the Jews? Will go on to say, truly this man is the son of God. And he would go home praising God. The religious leaders, you get to the book of Acts. And shortly after this event, we read that many, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. He answered that prayer, Father, forgive them. And you know what he does? He keeps answering that prayer, doesn't he? Even to this very day. Amen, indeed. Sinners being forgiven by a merciful Savior. I wonder, have you been forgiven? Have you received the forgiveness that Christ has died to purchase you? He is willing to forgive even his murderers. Sometimes you, you, you talk to someone or maybe sometimes you feel like, well, I don't know if God can forgive me for what I have done. I, you know, I, I, I do this too often or I did this too many times or can God really forgive this? Can God really forgive me? Or, or pastor, you don't know what I've done. I may not know what you've done, but I know what you have not done. And I know you have not literally nailed the son of God to the cross. And if he can forgive them, my friends, he can forgive anyone. There is no one beyond his reach. He is willing to forgive them. He even prays for it. Father, this is my will that you would forgive them. And when he says, by the way, they do not know what they do, please don't read that as, as him saying, oh, they're innocent. No, he wouldn't be praying, asking for their forgiveness if they're innocent. They don't know what they do, but they should. They're not only guilty for killing them, they're guilty for rejecting all the evidence laid out before them. And yet he continues to pray. Father, I pray that you would forgive them. Forgive them, he asks. And, and the only way in which God can forgive them, as you, I hope, know, is that Christ would offer himself as a sacrifice to pay for their sin and to pay for your sin. Please do not look at this man simply as another naked man dying on the cross in a Roman province. The Bible says in Romans 4 and verse 25, he was delivered up for our trespasses. That's why he's dying, for my sin and for your sin. The Holy Son of God enduring our condemnation, suffering our separation, receiving our shame so that you and I can be forgiven and welcomed into the presence of God. And I tell you with great humility in my heart and based upon the authority of the very word of God, what you do with the death of Christ will determine your eternity. There is no more important decision than what you do with this crucified man. The Bible says if you will bow your knee to him in faith and surrender your life to him in repentant trust, you too will be forgiven. My prayer, my plead with you today, turn to Christ. Trust in him. Even now, cry out to him in your heart. I believe 
And I yield my life to King Jesus. And for my Christian friends, as we end our time together, I think if the world would mock the one we follow, what do you think they will do with us? What are you expecting? The more we are like Jesus, I think the more we should be prepared to be wronged, to be reviled in our work, maybe in our families, maybe even in our church, God forbid. What will you do when you're wronged? What will you do when you're reviled? Will you, like so many, think, how dare you? I can't believe you did that. Who do you think you are? Will you think the worst of them? Will you gossip about them? Will you revile them in return? Or will you forgive? Will you absorb the wrong? I pray that Hamilton Baptist Church would grow as a community of forgiven sinners, forgiving sinners. That we would regularly experience forgiveness from one another because we have first experienced it from God himself. And therefore, we would be quick and delighted to be able to extend grace and mercy to when people wrong us because when we do so, we actually get to become more and more like Jesus. Jesus saved you by taking your sin. You understand that. By not repaying it, by praying for your forgiveness, by receiving slander and not returning it. When it happens to you, Because you are like Christ, simply just share in Christ's disgrace. Find joy that you get to be like Jesus and receive it as part of your witness. Revile me. Call me names. Wrong me. That's okay. God loves me. God's forgiven me. God's poured out grace upon me. And he accepts me. And so I will walk the path of derision like my Lord has walked. For he walked it for me. And my prayer this week has been that these truths in which we would consider would inflame in your heart such a love for him who paid so dearly for you that you would forget yourself. More and more, you would forget your own, your own name and your own pride and you would begin to live for the Lord. I wonder, in light of these truths, my brothers and sisters, how will you live for your crucified king this week? How will you respond to this forgiveness in which he has poured out on you. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to be like Jesus. That we would be like Jesus because of what he has done. He, of course, is not simply our example to follow, though he is. He is our substitute to embrace, our victor to cheer. So remind us we're not that important, that Christ is everything. And that we would delight in forgetting ourselves and living for the glory of our crucified Lord. We pray for our friend here, perhaps one, perhaps many more, that does not know the forgiveness in which Christ has died to secure. Would you not even now, by your Spirit, conjure forth the faith in their hearts that they might yield their life to Jesus and they too might be forgiven. They too might have eternal life. Do this for their great gain and for your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.